All right, let's just see what's going on here. Yep, the uh, introduction to this episode. This is a two-part episode, so before I get into the introduction, you need to understand that the first part of this episode appears on the Native Calgarian Podcast. The Native Calgarian Podcast, which is a podcast by a native Calgarian, but uh, an indigenous woman or First Nations woman from Canada talking about those issues and things we have in common and that sort of thing. And the second half of the conversation is here. So um, the link is in the show notes. If you want to hear the first half of the conversation, which is a slightly different tenor, you go to her webpage and listen. And then this will be my conversation. Okay, so uh, I am Dr. J.P.B. Gerald. This is Unstandardized English. I have succeeded in saying my name and the name of the show. Great job, Justin. So, as I said in the brief, brief intro, um, this is a two-parter. I haven't done this in a while. I tried to do this three years ago, and it was before I figured some stuff out with the audio. And I know I sometimes have audio issues on this show, but um, not today because I am recording this with my actual microphone. Um, but, you know, the, (laughs) the last time is when I sort of figured out what I happen to know about Zoom now. And the reason I still record through Zoom, which I know is not perfect, but is that when I use Audacity, which is what I use for these introductions, I use my microphone, and it's much better. But Audacity picks up so much background noise, and it's hard to edit out. I do when I go back and I edit it, but it's uh, if you hear background noise, it's just because it was happening in the background, and I don't have the time, frankly, to go and edit things that carefully. But that, that one three years ago, which I can't believe was three years ago... Um, my audio was all you heard of the subway in the background, which you might hear right now. And um, I don't even notice the subway as a New Yorker most of the time. I just, it's just, you know. The funny thing is with my ADHD, someone whispering near me is much more disruptive to me than the subway or an airplane or a car. You know, these sort of loud city noises don't bother me at all. Frankly, I can't sleep in quiet places like the country can't live there. Couldn't really live in a suburb either. When my mom used to live out in an exurb in Pennsylvania, I used to have a lot of trouble sleeping. Um, so that's just something about me. But the point is, back then, I realized that it actually made some sense to use Zoom to record because what Zoom does is that you don't get two voices at the same time in Zoom. You only get the little green box around one person talking, so it you can also mute yourself in between. So, you know, it just it separates the two things. That's all. I don't have that much to say. But anyway, this is a really interesting conversation with Native Calgarian. Her name is Michelle, actually. But um, And I hope that you enjoy it. Um, like I said, part one of this conversation is on the Native Calgarian website. I urge you to go and listen to it. It's not like you have to listen to it in order to understand what I'm saying, but I encourage you to do so because we planned this for a reason. So go listen to that. Otherwise, check out the Patreon. But honestly, go buy the book. It's out there. And I'm waiting around to get approval on my follow-up book. So maybe you'll hear about that soon, but probably going to be a few more months. All right. 
So, uh, like I said, folks, uh, I'm here with the native Calgarian herself, uh, Michelle Robinson, although I'm going to allow her to introduce herself uh, so that you all know who she really is. And then we're going to get into this conversation about a lot of things, the things that I usually talk about on this show, but I actually think the uh, conversation we're going to have will be really valuable because, well, I'm going to talk forever if I just do this, but basically this is part two of a conversation that we started on her podcast last week, Um, although we recorded it like a second ago, but don't worry about that. Uh, And at the end of that conversation, which you should go listen to if you have not yet, uh, we touched on, you know, the aspect of sort of racial gaslighting, I want to say. Um, which, for those who don't know, I think people listen to my show know, but if they don't, right, gaslighting obviously is not just lying, because I think a lot of people think, people start to use gaslighting for just lying, which, no, <laughs> it's specifically actively and intentionally denying someone's reality in order to make them feel as though they are losing their mind, right? Like, it's not just lying, because then it, it means nothing if it just means lying, right? It's specifically... Uh, psychological manipulation to make people think that they are unwell, right? And we're going to talk about that because I think that what is common about non-United States white-dominated countries is a particular idea that it's only the United States that does racism, right? Now, this is not me defending the United States uh, before people say, oh, you're saying United States is great, whatever. I am just saying that the borders that were made up did not constrain the racism on either side of them in any way. So anyway, I have talked enough. Please tell the people who you are and we will get into our conversation. Sure. Oki, nagana go meko che chestakoma ki or dekots nagotine siku. So I tried to say, hi, my name is Red Thunder Woman, first in Blackfoot to honor the lands that I'm on. And then I said it in Satu Dene to honor my ancestry. So, uh, you know, I call myself Native Calgarian really to poke fun at folks who call themselves Native Calgarians because being, um, you know, when you say something like that, it shows that you don't understand uh, what Native actually is. And it also shows that you don't understand land acknowledgement. So it's kind of a, an instant Indigenous 101 and land acknowledgement without an Indigenous erasure all in one when I hear something like that. So um, when I hear someone call themselves a Native Brooklyn person or whichever, then I know that they don't understand stolen lands, they don't understand Indigenous people, etc., etc. So anyway, um, I started a, a podcast here in Calgary because we only hear uh, white people and white perspective, and we never have Indigenous inclusion. And when we do, it's negative stereotyping. So for me, I thought it was really incredibly important to start talking about the important things Indigenous people do that are fabulous, con- contribute to what we uh, consider Canada now. And then that bigger picture of talking about racial gaslighting. I mean, I'm not going to pull a punch and lie about these types of things. I, I wish I could. I wish that these things weren't happening so that I, <laughs> I, I, and how great it would be just to live in joy. How great would that be? So that's really why I started the podcast is to, to heal from the crapola 
Um, I don't know if folks in New York are, are hearing about it, but our our country is really in a reckoning moment of understanding the genocide that's been perpetrated, not just in Canada, but also in the States against Indigenous people. So um, land acknowledgements is a huge part of that conversation and acknowledging the land that you're on. So that that's a big part of my intro when I do one. And um, and that's what I try to educate people with, with my uh, geomatics background. Um, and interestingly enough, geomatics being the tool of colonialism. So, you know, to, to separate the land and, and separate it into parcels so that people can own it. And Indigenous people actually don't believe in owning the land, but yet here we are. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting because I'm not going to get too much into my current job because I don't talk too much about it here, if only because it's not super relevant. But it's an interesting conversation because, and I don't want to go too deep down this road because I'll get sidetracked and then I'll never get back to what I want to say, but like... I always feel like one of the things that I think um, about is my family was was owned um, in mostly South Carolina. And, uh, you know, part of me wants to someday, once I have enough money, which, frankly, South Carolina is not that extensive, but um, <laughs> is to, 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 to go back to, to that place. All the, uh, on the other hand, as, you know, Roxanne dunbar would 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 call it like, Descendants of the enslaved are sort of this third category, right? What well, she calls them as arrivants, right? You know, not, not that we can't participate in colonialism, but like we were one of the products of it, right? You know, we certainly didn't choose. And so it's an interesting conversation. And obviously there should be great solidarity between the black and indigenous communities, not to pretend that there aren't people who are both, including me, but, uh, yeah. So it's just something to think. It's, it's, it, you know, the concept of owning land is like, yeah. Well, I, I have no you're stolen. Like I, I, I always encourage people to like introduce themselves with their lineage. And I've had uh, people just break down in tears as black people uh, and be like, I have no idea. You're you, they, I, I've had a black woman like yell at me and you're even lucky, you know, where you're from. And I respect that. And I told her and I said, I respect where you're coming from. And I want your coworkers to understand the gravity of of what has been built here on the backs of her and on the backs of my people, right? Because that, that's a really important conversation to have that we're not having at all. And I, I want to have that conversation. Yeah, that's a conversation. Cause I remember when I was younger thinking about that, we would do these things like looking back at our family and just like, you know, I had to tell my teachers like, yeah, it just sort of, uh, I don't really know beyond a certain point. I know a lot more now because the internet's a lot easier to use than it was when I was a kid. But sure. when I was a kid, like, well, it's only what my parents could tell me, you know, which is true of everybody back then. But I just mean like different groups of parents could tell a lot more, right? Yeah. You know, you could say my grandmother's from Italy or my grandmother's from this place. Like my my wife's grandmother is from Italy. So like, you know, yeah. that, that's that, that's that's someone you know, your grandparents in, the, in your lifetime, right? A lot of the time. So, you know, it's, uh, it, it's, 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 uh, it's complicated, let's just, just say. So what I was saying at the beginning, though, about this is that what I've noticed, and I probably always knew this, but I only really started paying attention in the last few years, is that, um, you know, in 2020, there was a lot of solidarity and 
Some of that's waned, but I will say there has been a change, at least in the tenor of the conversations, I would say. I think the people who were always against thinking about this have just dug in their heels. But frankly, they were always going to be like that. Like, they they haven't really changed. It just got louder, right? Because yeah. they were just like, before that, they, it was just easier for them to not pay attention. But now they're like, I don't want to have to pay attention to this. Uh, <laughs> but they're like really mad about it, right? As, but like all, all their efforts to make it impossible for people to learn things aren't going to work because even if it's annoying, if they try to take these things out of schools, it's like, but, but the internet exists now. So people are going to find out if they want to. Like the kids who want to learn this stuff are going to learn it. They're just going to, right? And the kids who don't want to learn it probably weren't going to learn it very well in the first place because I'm, it's better that it's taught in schools, but it kind of needs to be taught well. Yeah. Like, like that's one of, I'm not saying it's good to take it out of schools in a lot of places. I am saying most of those teachers aren't trained in doing it well. And so I, because I was taught various things about like civil rights movement and whatever, right? And if you're taught that poorly, it's not better than not learning it at all, but it's not a lot. (laughs) It's not, it's, it's, it's not much better to, to be taught that poorly, you know? Yeah. These days, it might not be so bad because if you're curious, you can go online and find out the truth, right? Yep. Yep. You know, so anyway. I'm going to circle back to that, uh, topic of education and poor teaching because I grew up here in uh, Sylvan Lake is a a small town in the middle of Alberta so it's even more redneck than Calgary and I know we've already established from my last podcast that uh, Calgary is a pretty pretty redneck little place right so um, anyway we actually had a holocaust denier um, in one of our our schools that was so loud about holocaust denying and he actually was eventually said, OK, well, no, you can't teach anymore. And that was a big deal because of, you know, the rights of free speech. And and I mean, that was me growing up in the frickin 80s. So like we talk about not just not having the education, but then worse, p- perpetuating stereotypes and perpetuating violence. So like I, I don't know how many uh, folks that were actually Jewish in his classroom, but, you know, like if he was saying Indian residential school denying uh, statements and I was in that classroom like I I don't know what I would do and and that's a real issue that I'm fighting right now too and and in the states for your listeners they would be boarding schools and actually my husband was directly impacted by a boarding school so um, this is a a, a common issue across and and a new type of denialism that's going to be coming up so yeah yeah I mean you know so there's 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 because I've found that whether it's Canada, whether it's the UK, whether it's Australia, New Zealand, you can continue to add to the list. There is this particular idea that because the United States media is very loud and because movies are very, you know, they spread very easily, um, what our version of racism is the only version, right? Like it's the most, it's the worst version. First of all, ranking racism is pointless, right? Like, oh, well, racism is worse over here. I will say that I've had worse racism experiences in place A versus place B, but I'm only speaking of myself, right? Um, And, like, I can tell you how I felt when I was in Asia versus how I feel in the United States, right? I can tell you what that experience was like, but, like, and for people who listening know that I've said this many times, there were clearly a lot of people in Asia who had never seen a black person before, but they were mostly just ignorant and confused. Like, I never felt any danger or hatred, and they just were like, what is that? <laughs> 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 which, like, 
you know, it was mostly kind of cute because like they they didn't know. Um, and I'm not trying to infantilize them. I just mean in the sense that like they clearly they were they were speaking to me. They were very friendly. You know, um, yeah. everyone who bothered there were people who were probably afraid of me, but they just they didn't come up to me, so I wouldn't know. Sure. But anyway, um, I really get so much of this condescension from other white dominant countries, um, where they say I can't believe what's happening there. And that was really interesting to see all the stuff that's happened in Canada because it's the same stuff, but people like, I feel like a lot of people's brains broke in Canada because they're like, wait, they're doing the same things that the Americans are doing. Like what, what, but we're not like the American, we, we, we're cat, we don't do this. Right. With the trucker stuff. Right. Like all that. Right. You know, it's like, you know, I'm sure when the first vaccines came out, Canada looked down at us and said, Oh, look at them. They're denying the vaccines. And then the same thing happened. And it's like, Oh no, we're not actually different. You know, um, the same things happening in the UK. There's a lot of vaccine deniers in the UK, whatever, right? It's, it's yeah. the same thing. Like the particular flavors of colonialism and racism will be different based on a particular, you know, entity's history. But like, I get really, really annoyed when people from other white dominant countries look down on us, not because we're bad, better than they say, but because placing these other places on a pedestal just it's just, I mean, for you, it has to be so infuriating for them to pretend that all the racism is contained within the imaginary borders of the United States. Boy, it's back to that gaslighting, isn't it? Like, I get so angry about it. Um, Just to give you an example of that. Um, so I'm obviously Indigenous. I've been a part of Indigenous organizations for the last 15 years advocating um, at different orders of government. And we would tell them about racism. We would tell them about some of the reports that we encourage all of them, say, anti-racism training, Indigenous education as a priority. And um, then when 2020 happened, my city council had the audacity to be like, oh, my God, I had no idea racism was so bad in the city and had like three days of open conversation with uh, folks of color from the brown community, the black community, the Asian community talking about the racism that they experience. And I just refused to watch it. I refused to listen to it. And I was so angry that they were gaslighting us. And then I guess another example would be when the graves started to, um, you know, be announced and they were like, uh, so many Canadians were like, oh, my God, I had no idea. And I'm like, we gave you a goddamn book. We gave you the book, the book that says missing children, unmarked burial sites. Here's the book. It was published before this date. So it's like all this gaslighting, constant gaslighting from folks. And and that's and, and, and just to be really clear that our ancestors told them this happened and it was the police, education, every type, every order of institution saying, no, no, that didn't happen because they, they couldn't, you know, do any self-examination on their racism. Right. Yeah. And then it goes to what we mentioned sort of at the end of the last conversation, which I'm going to keep teasing because I want people to go back and listen to it. But like, you know, we we that's why I don't like to traffic in trauma because they're not going to listen anyway. So if there's a good reason for me to share trauma, I can see that there could be reasons when it would be relevant, right? Context where it would make sense, you know, but convincing white people to pay attention is not a context because if they already cared, they don't need it. Yeah. And if that's what it takes, then it's not going to last. 
No. You know what I'm saying? If there are people who genuinely are committed to doing what they can and, you know, what one can do, there's only so many things an individual can do. But like if we're committed to finding ways to challenge these things are going to be committed regardless of what videos they see. Right. Like I'm not saying it's not to me, the preponderance of the existence of these things is itself its education more than the videos themselves. You know, yeah. so like knowing that it's happening to me, it should be enough of a push for people. Right. right. And yeah. I don't necessarily, you know, my dissertation research was I interviewed, I taught these classes about whiteness and then I interviewed the people who took the classes, which sounds very self-focused, but also because there's very few classes that are explicitly about whiteness. There's a lot of classes about racism and there's a lot of classes about white supremacy, but I'm trying to call into question the entire construct of whiteness, right? I'm not, yeah. you know, some people get, oh, oh, you're just saying, it's just like, relax. To me, when someone gets upset about that, I'm just saying, so what is it about whiteness that you're attached to? Yep. <laughs> it's, it, which is very different from being attached to being Italian or Irish or whatever, right? Or German, like, Austrian, whatever. Right. Yeah. But if you are attached to being white, but why? Because there, they didn't used to be a white, right? They didn't used to be all of it, but like, I feel very differently about different racial groups because whether we call ourselves based on colors or not, like, there are some groups of solidarity, this community that can be built, right? When you're having community that's about being white, you're really having community about not being other things. Yeah. You know, and I think, and this is something for with which I do empathize. It is a deep intellectual and emotional challenge to go from having been taught that, whether explicitly or implicitly, to getting over the hump and continuing. Like, I totally understand why that is hard. It is hard. You're challenging everything you've been taught. And like when I had these moments, and obviously I'm not white, but I had these moments when I was upholding a lot of things. And I'm not saying I still don't. I mean, you know, whatever. We all live within capitalism. But like, um, I, it was hard. You know, I was like, but how can I be part of the problem? I'm not. I'm a good, I'm good. I'm good. I'm a good person. Right. And then you go through these cycles where you're like, oh, no, I'm not a good person. I'm a bad person. Right. And which is like, that's also not helpful (laughs) because then you're not going to do anything. Right. And and they say that um, I can't remember what it's called, but in the stages, which I don't love the linear stage model, but there are kernels of insight within the stage model for like uh, white racial development where they basically say and this is not just a racism thing you could do this with sexism colonialism whatever things that people ascribe to is that there's the period that's the really challenging period like there's people they don't know anything then they know a little bit and they know more and they get really into it and then the next part is really challenging because they get really into it and then they're going to hit a roadblock right and the roadblock could either be logistical like they try to do something it didn't work or internal where they're like oh my god this means i've done all these things right and getting over that hump is when i think that people can get to where it's just part of their lives and they're continuing because that hump is really hard and i like i completely i when i say empathize i don't mean that i justify it but i mean like i understand why just as a human that is hard you know I think about the things that I've upheld and done in the past and like, I can't undo them. Yeah. You have to sit with the fact that like my book is about teaching and a lot of my writing is about education. And I realize a lot of the things that I ascribe to even disconsciously 
were harmful. And I pushed those ideas onto my students for however many years. And when yeah. you realize that, you say, well, I need to do better. But like you, those first years still happened. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you can't undo that. And um, like I because the, the reason why I also brought up the whole uh, teaching in central Alberta, that type of thing was because um like back to the being raised in a racist environment uh, in general, like I had a really anti-Semitic thing that I would say. And it wasn't until a friend said, you realize what you're saying, right? And I didn't. So, um, you know, it was really un- undoing that. And even though I lived through uh, Rodney King, I lived through uh, NWA, you know, it it wasn't until George Floyd and all of these resources on on blackness came out that I started to unpack my own anti-blackness. And the truth is because you're raised in a white supremacist environment, you, you have it. And as a straight cis person, you know, you, you perpetuate that as well. And I, I don't mean to, but it's something that now I'm conscious of that I completely was unconscious of for a long, long time. And now I even wear these because, um, like here, the concept that really blew my mind came out of a book, uh, Sarah Carter, The Importance of Monogamy, and it talked about uh, settler colonialism on on Alberta, and what it, what it said basically was that, you know, the straight agenda was imposed with Christianity and English, and that just blew my mind. Where it's like, okay, so it was totally normal to have uh, gender diversity until this concept was forced on these lands until. This whole colonial construct was forced on these lands. Um, I use she and her pronouns, but the truth is, is that my my language, and we're trying to reclaim our language. Our language used to ha- only have they and them. So, if you, really, if you're deconstructing and decolonizing, then really using the they and them should be a pretty much monogamous indigenous uh, thing, but it, it's not because every nation had their own teaching. So with gender diversity, so, you know, it, there, there's so much to pull from that. And that's like, I was so excited to connect with you because I knew you out of all people would, would understand where I'm coming from with all of this. Yeah. It's, um, you know, in my, in my dissertation and in other places, you know, I refer, it's, uh, they call it the master narrative. Right. Which is, you know, societal stories that we buy into without even thinking about it, you know. So it could be something as as broad as the American dream or it could be something as subtle as just the the general idea that your life stages will proceed in this way. Sure. You go to this, then you're going to do that. You're going to do this job. You're going to have a kid and you get married or usually the other way around, whatever, and then you're going to buy a house and so on and so forth, right? And if you're not doing that at a certain pace, then you are, you know, less worthwhile or whatever, right? Yeah. I'm not saying that. I'm, I'm saying people think that. That's, um, that's, I, that's the narrative, though, right? Like, yeah. even like if you're not putting X amount of money in your RESVP or RESP or your, your retirement savings, I, I can't remember what you call it in, in the States. Like Usually K- it's a 401k or an IRA. Yeah, 401k, you, you know, know like that things. bigger picture, like you're, you're not, you're not doing what you should be. It what well, should be normal should. Yeah. Which, <laughs> well, it's cause it's like the reason they say that you have to be so aggressive is mostly so they can not help you. <laughs> it's right. They're saying you need to put this much away because we ain't going to do it for you. Right. <laughs> Which is not said, but it's implied by this. Now, look, 
is it a good idea to save some of your money if you can? Of course. But like, uh, that's this idea that there's something wrong with you if you can't do that. It's, you know, like obviously, I don't, I'm not going to judge an individual person on their spending habits. There are clearly good and bad financial decisions to make. <laughs> but like, uh, it, it, this idea that there's something less valuable in, in, in what you're doing and in your decisions. Yeah. You know, so to go back to the sort of general theme of the sort of racial gaslighting in these different countries, like from my experiences, there's, you know, the United States is so brash in a lot of ways that that, because other countries are stereotyped as being more polite, which is not true, but that's the idea. Um, racism is associated with, with impoliteness, right? It's about being mean, right? And I think, obviously, a lot of racist things are mean, <laughs> but like, that's not really what it is, or it's not most of what it is, right? I feel like, and I've said this in other conversations, if we actually only had individual mean behaviors as racism, it wouldn't be that hard to stop, <laughs> you know, because like if it was just like people saying slurs or whatever, like that's not good. But like you could just very easily be like, hey, stop, <laughs> you know, and they might not. But that like that individual person might be ostracized or whatever the situation is. And and it wouldn't be society. The, the, the thing I said this online and I don't, I guess I don't love to talk about the trauma part, but this is not about the trauma part is that I am not as concerned with the small number of people who commit the violent acts as with the hundreds of people who show up to celebrate them. Right. Mm -hmm. And those hundreds of people, and in, in this case, I suppose I'm talking about lynching in the United States, but it could be anything. Those hundreds of people are not the people who like went there and watched it happen. Right. These are the people who heard there's a celebration and they see the like body there. And they're just not paying attention. It's just like a normal thing to be doing. Right. My um, concern. And yeah, that's not happening that often anymore. But like to me, the grandparents of the three people who did it, that's a problem. But the grandparents of the people who went to the town party, that's what I'm concerned about. You know, when I yep. think about sundown towns in the United States, right, most of them do not exist legally in the sense that you can't actually do that anymore legally by keeping people out. Right. They got rid of the ordinances. Right. Um, but not that long ago. <laughs> so so like you could very easily be my age or your age and you were not. You didn't have any, you didn't choose to move into a sundown town at our age because of the, the time in which they were mostly abolished. But your parents might have. Sure. <laughs> and your sure. parents, again, to me, they don't have to be the architect of the sundown town or the enforcer of the sundown town. They could just be someone who saw a place that just happened not to have any black people and said, that seems like a good place to live. Right? Even if they're not the ones keeping the black people out. Yeah. Right. But they go and they look at the place and like that seems like a good place to live and they live there and then so forth. And now these days there it's very easy for them to claim because none of them are completely all white anymore because it's just not a thing anymore. Um, okay. Well, we got one. <laughs> well, we got a few. Right. You know, or or what I've heard sometimes I hear this from Canadians. I hear this from people in suburbs that are particularly white is that, oh, well. X town is very diverse. I'm like, yeah, but you don't live 
there. <laughs> you, yeah, that's the town that they let us live in because you didn't want us to live in your town, you know. Right. And, um, and there's a bigger picture here in Canada. Like, uh, I'm, I'm gonna tell you, you and your viewers, something that you may not know. Um, so we all know slavery is wrong, and we all know slavery is outlawed. However, we in polite society of colonialism have figured out how to continue slavery without naming it slavery. So we have something called the Temporary Foreign Workers Program here in Canada. And what that means is that we bring the poorest of the poor people, whether they're from Mexico, the Philippines, wherever, and we allow them to come into the country only to do the shittiest work that absolutely nobody wants to do. So I'll give you an example. The town of Brooks is just outside of Calgary, and it has a meat uh, packing processing plants. And that is an awful, awful job. And no Canadians, no white Canadians want to take that job. And they don't want to hire natives, and they certainly don't want to hire black people. So what they do is the uh, owners of these meat processing plants work with the governments to bring in foreign labor, where they come here and they have zero rights. They have zero health rights. They have zero rights. They are forced to live in overcrowded places. And they have to do their job. And if they lose a limb, something like that, they just ship them home. And um, shipping them here, they are considered uh, in debt to the owner of the meat processing plant. And then that owner, um, you know, works off their debt. So they may get maybe $700 a month. $600 of that is for rent. Well, are they really making any money? No, no. So we in polite society have figured out a way to perpetuate slavery and uh, not give people actual rights. And everybody's okay with it. Everyone thinks it's cool. And and uh, a lot of the chains, same thing. So the owners of these chains will, you know, have a good political friend that they get elected. And that's who they bring in to bring in more temporary foreign workers now so that we can continue this slavery uh, ride, really. So that we've just repackaged it. Instead of calling it slavery, we call it the Temporary Foreign Workers Program. I didn't unmute myself. Anyway, yeah, that's basically exactly what sharecropping was, right? I mean, yep. that's basically what it was, right? Um, the whole working off your debt and, you know, you got to pick this much cotton until we let you leave, but we never actually have enough that we can pick, right? So, great. Yep. Um, they're probably not literally... Their child isn't probably literally born into slavery, but this, you know, it's a slight improvement from the 1850s. So great. They've made minor improvements in 170 years. Um, yeah. So, you know, we, we find our ways to, I think in a way, it's actually more profitable for them to allow people to have a minimal amount of rights than to have zero, right? Because like <laughs> in the 17th century, 18th century, like literally you, you're born on the plantation and that's the end of it. Right. That's the end. They sell you somewhere. They don't literally sell you like that anymore because with the systems that we have now, it's probably easier for them to do it that way, where they give you a little bit of money, but not enough to live so that you're attached to as opposed to giving them zero dollars because like, you know, that, that it's just not good for business. <laughs> it's really what it is. It's not good for right. business. Um, and I get really, I get really frustrated with you know, Canadians and, and, and British folks and um, 
particularly because they're first of all anything associated with the crown needs to shut up about racism but um <laughs> it's just like come on now come on what, what do you think that that was uh yep. or is and second of all there's there's always been this weird I guess people just need something to do because like there's always this country comparison about what's good and bad in countries and there are obviously aspects that are better in this place than that place or better in that place than this place, right? But like all we're doing is really um ranking aspects of our societies instead of challenging the overall issues that cross borders because like when we say well this country has this much freedom or this country has this much corruption or this country has this much whatever the implication is that there is an ideal right and what's what's always the ideal the ideal is always scandinavia right mm-hmm. that's always what's best in this way i'm not saying it's a bad place to be in scandinavia but on the other hand that also pretends that scandinavia hasn't done colonialism too Right. Oh, they're better because of X, Y, and Z. They're certainly better in some ways, but like we act like there weren't and aren't indigenous people in Scandinavia who have been pushed aside. Yeah, the Sami always talk about that. And, you know, you you can see the uh, racism in their uh, Christmas decorations. They have like this black caricature and, and they perpetuate it. Yeah, they, there's a lot, they're like, no, no, it's just tradition. I'm like, but it's a racist tradition. <laughs> it's just like, yeah, okay, but just because it's old doesn't mean it's okay, you know, you've been doing it for a long time, so, so stop. Um, and I get really like, yeah, so I just think it's funny because there are people, uh, on, people on the left even, but not that far left, who will say, I'm moving to Canada because of X, Y, and Z, or I'm moving to the UK, or I'm moving to Europe because of X, Y, and Z. And I'm like, you know, go if you want to, but like (laughs) the fact that you think that this, you know, thing that's affecting you, which I am sure, because there are plenty of things that affect people of all races and genders, but like if you believe that this thing that is a problem for you, which I am not denying that the particular thing that they're talking about is a problem will go away if you cross a border suggests that it is only something that applies to other aspects of your identity and that you actually could escape by going to another place. Because like when I hear this from white people, I know they're like, well, I'm getting my passport ready. I'm like, where, where would I go? Sure. Where am I going to go? I mean, not even just, I'm not going to do it because I have a kid and all that, but also just like, where, where, where's the, where's the no racism? Right. Where am I going to go? You know, we have that issue here. Um, so many people are ridiculously rich in Calgary. So they'll go to Hawaii or Mexico on a regular basis. And it's like, that is a form of, uh, colonialism. Kind of back to your point about, uh, people on the left. Um, we have a really like a, uh, Trump light type of, um, government here and as a result a lot of people are like oh my god i'm so leaving and i'm gonna go somewhere else and then they leave and i'm like so you were on stolen lands you didn't like how your own governance that's your governance not ours 
wasn't working. So now you're going to pick up your toys and leave and go to a different sound box that still oppresses indigenous people. And you think you're somehow progressive. Okay. It's cool. And that that's a really common narrative in Alberta where it's like you we're losing doctors left, right, center, nurses, teachers, because, you know, there's been a real war on public servants. So as a result, a lot of those so-called progressives, so-called left are like, Oh my God, I got to leave here. And then they go, so, you know, and it's like, okay, great. But now you're just continuing to perpetuate colonialism on a different person's land instead of this one. Yeah, I hear. Yeah, it's. um I have a lot of frustration when people say that because. Like, for example, when we talk, people people talk about how hostile it is to, you know, queer folks these days, and it certainly is. But then, do you really think the UK is better? Because they're, they're the ones talking about all that turf stuff over there. You know, so like, it, it, it's like, whatever the thing is, you're only going to be, you know, you're just going to be, I, I think people are just doing it for pride because they, they, they're proud, they're proud that they be, became an expat or something like that. Sure. They're proud because they went to this other place. What you're really saying is you have enough money and an, and a flexible enough career and your children are flexible enough or whatever that you could just do this and not think about it, right? Or people I know who, and again, I'm, again, I'm not criticizing people who are truly struggling financially, right? I'm not talking about them and, I, and neither are you. But like, there are people I know who in the last couple of years said, well, the taxes are too high here. So I'm going to move to this state where taxes are lower. Okay. Fine. Again, I am not telling people who don't have any money, right? You know, they, they're going to go buy a cheaper house in Texas or the Southeast or whatever, right? So do that if you want to, but I will tell you, like, First of all, the areas you're moving to are going to be the ones hit the hardest by climate change, but fine, go ahead. Um, <laughs> uh, and second of all, uh, when people say things like, well, I don't want to do any business with any business that's in like Texas or something. Like, I understand not doing business with the Texas government, but like the work that I do, which we're trying to help the people who live in Texas or Georgia or whatever it is. And it's like, so you're saying you're going to leave. So what ends up happening, and this happened even in New York, is that a small, a certain number of people left, and then we have less money because we have enough money, but we pretend we have less money because there's slightly less tax money coming in. So we cut the services that the people who left didn't even need. So then the people who are here who couldn't leave are now without the services that they needed, and then they end up on the street or they end up outside, and then the people who stayed here said, I can't believe these people are on the street. I don't know what to do about it. And it's just like, I just, I find it very, very upsetting because I, I never really expected that I'd be able to watch a slow motion white flight in progress. <laughs> Because I've read about it and I saw it, you know, it's in the 50s, 60s, 70s, right? And, you know, there's always some of that going on, right? But I think part of it was that I had a kid, or my wife had a kid, but you know what I mean. Um, yeah. I became a father. And then you start having parent conversations, right? You know, and you start talking to other parents. And that was always the first year we were all inside. So all we did was be online and talk to people. And then the conversations you have... Everyone, not everyone, but a lot of people I talked to would say, well, you know, we'll be here for another year. Then we're going to move to X town, right? And that's fine. I'm not saying you can't do that. But on the other hand, 
they're always moving to whiter places. Yep. You know, and then they'll say, well, it's for the schools. Right. Or it's for that, et cetera. Right. I never begrudge anybody living where their job is. If your job is an X place and you got to go live next to your job, like fine, you know, but that's not what they're doing. They're still working here. So they're, they're, they're benefiting from the, the resources that are in the city, but they don't want to contribute to the city by leaving. This is why I've always been committed to cities generally, if I'm going to live in a place, um, because at the very least, I feel as though I can be part of more of a community here. And when I'm in like the suburbs, I feel like I'm really separated from everybody and I don't like being there. So that's a real conversation that we have out here um, in Calgary, because we have all these little satellite towns, uh, Chestermere and Airdrie, um, you're not Cochrane, um, maybe not spelled the way you might think it is anyway. These uh, these satellite cities, they they um, a lot, everyone lives out there because the houses are cheaper. So they'll come in and they'll ride our sea train um, resources and work downtown, but you know, and and won't pay for the infrastructure of the roads, won't pay for the infrastructure of the transit. So um, these were things I was talking about when I ran um, because I I really felt that we were at a point that we could talk about anti-racism, indigenous inclusion, reconciliation, and you know, urban settings. And and uh, our suburbia is obviously all car centric. And uh, that's a real conversation to have about climate change as well. So um, with a lot of the, the conversation was livable uh, urban centers, downtown, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, and trying to reframe our suburbs in a better way. But the people in charge of the politicians and uh, the homeowner associations, like they're, they're in bed together. Uh, the NHL um, is in bed with the stampede who's in bed with the politicians. So we, we don't have really services for people. We have services for these corporations. And uh, I'm sure we could have a whole conversation about how these stadiums have never really, um, they're always uh, bought and paid for by taxpayers and taxpayers don't receive the benefits of, uh, of these stadiums. So uh, sports in itself is so toxic. So. Yeah. And the sad thing is like, you know, in the abstract, I enjoy watching sports, but like the leagues are such a problem, you know? Um, right. <laughs> and yeah, because like, if you think about it, right, they just decide we're going to charge you several billion dollars to build this stadium. But like, if you're going to do that, can I use it for free? <laughs> right. If I'm paying for it, well, right. Let me go, you know, right? you know, and then they keep jacking up the prices, right. It costs all this money to go to game. Um, and like, you know, it's like, a thing that you really got to plan and save for for most families to go to like, yeah, I take my son to a baseball game, right? And it costs a bunch of money, you know? Yep. Um, but like, yeah, the whole suburbs and it's, it's like, it's, it's like my wife and I, because people have these conversations and we've gone back and forth. We're going to move here. We're going to move there. And like, we know we don't want to live in the suburbs. So we're just like, well, what city would it be? Well, what about here? What about here? But like every single city in the United States with perhaps the exception of Chicago Outside of New York, even the cities, like, they have transportation, but, like, you can't really just rely on it. Like, the people who live there and don't have cars, they have to rely on it, and it's just unreliable, slow, and whatever, right? Uh, maybe Boston, because Boston has pretty good transportation. But um, you get what I'm saying. Most of them are. And the only ones, like New York, Chicago, Boston, are the only ones where I could think that you could possibly get around and not be stressed out without the, the you know, having the car around. And, like, that's obviously something that has 
was designed on purpose. The areas where people of color live are the areas that transportation doesn't always go. <laughs> and yet they don't always have access to trans to, to their own cars. So you yep. end up in a situation where you just got to have a super long commute. There's only certain jobs you can work. And then, of course, these are often the people who don't have the luxury of working from home some of the time. Like I go into the office sometimes, but uh I don't have to be there all the time. I'm at home now. So like it's uh it's uh it's a whole bunch of stuff mushed together. It's just there's just, a really great uh Twitter that I follow about segregated designs and they talk about how when they have too many people of color in a certain area, they just like demolish it and put up a highway. So like that's a conversation that I, I wish we'd have. Here in Calgary we have like the Northeast, which is predominantly brown people and black people, lower income. And um the realtors have all kind of collectively said, here's the red line of where we put the white people compared to the non-white people. So, like, it, like it's a real by design decision to have poor people in poor places and uh, then plow over it with roads and, and such. And, um, you know, so really great Twitter handle if you're you're interested as well on um, basically redlining and segregation in general. Um, and I think that's a really important conversation to have when we're talking about racism and, and gaslighting when, you know, it, it's not something in the past. And I know folks like to say that, but it like the structure is there. The structure is made on purpose and it's not just on stolen lands, but it's also like when you look at how they, um, uh, I don't know how you decriminalized uh slavery you know like how they designed the cities and the towns based on that how the the foundations of the prisons were created because of that actually uh penitentiary being you know a, a public place that people slaves could go and live or former slaves could live because you couldn't be on the streets like it it's just so wild uh we had a, what was called a the pass system here where if you didn't have a Indian agent giving you a pass that said it's okay for you to be off the reserve, then the police had the full authority to throw you in jail. So, you know, like it, it's the same type of concept, only just different depending on which side of the border you're on. And this ties into my work. And so I'll just sort of circle up towards the end here. When we point this out, they tell us, that we are unwell, right? They don't just tell us we're wrong. Telling us we're wrong is something I would disagree with, but that's like, I don't, someone telling me I'm wrong is fine. Like we disagree, fine. But they, they specifically want to make the point either to themselves or to the people that they talk to that by seeking liberation, we are unwell, mm. right? And it goes yeah. back to, to Drapidomania, right? In, in the 19th century, it goes to the way that indigenous folks are seen as unwell when they try to not be on reservations. Um, not that, the, you know, being there is bad. You know what I'm saying? When they try to move around, like you just said, you know? Yep. Um, and they say that, you know, when, when they use the language of, of disability and, 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 uh, disorder to scare people. Because if someone is unwell, then you don't know what they're going to do. They could do anything and they're going to come for you, you know, and they, they don't usually say that last part, but that's what's implied. Yep. You know, if the person is, you know, they're basically calling everyone who, who tries to fight the status quo psychotic, 
right? Yeah. They, they see things that aren't there, and therefore we need to control their movements and what they can do and find little ways in every direction. Like when they go up for a job, they can only have this hair when they end, right? And if they want to do things differently, there's something wrong with them. They're unprofessional, right? Everything that we do in all of these hierarchies and all of the language we use reinforces the same ideas about um, everybody involved. So uh, I want to thank you for being here with me this this I will say this afternoon, but like when this show comes out, it'll be the morning, but it doesn't matter. Um, because I think it's a really important conversation and I hope that we can have more in the future because it's certainly not the end of it. No, no. And I, I just want you to know how much I appreciate you being on mine and uh, for this conversation for me to be on yours. So thank you so much. And I just hope, you know, like to me, you know, if the mainstream media controls the narrative, like that's the importance of these types of podcasts. So I sure hope, you know, your listeners support you and my listeners have been very fortunate to help support me. So, um, you know, it, it is really important if you want to get out of this, uh, you know, mainstream narrative of how we should behave, how we should look, how we should act. Um, you know, I'm done white coating and I don't want people to mask around me. I want people to be their authentic selves and we can't tell our children to be authentically themselves and then, you know, still have boundaries. <laughs> you know, this is how you must behave. I mean, if you're a good person, you're a good person. That should be enough. But uh, one day I hope there's a more equitable uh, world where my child has an equal chance of other people. But the way the system is designed right now, it's not. So I think systemic uh, inequalities are a really important thing for us to be always addressing until they're fixed. And I think because what you said with these sort of alternative media efforts, I guess this is media, right? Um, yeah, it's important. But and I and, and for me and for people who listen to this, a lot of them are academics, is to understand that you know what I'm trying to do here. I feel like what I do here has more reach than any journal article I'm going to write. You know. Sure. The journal yeah. articles are important in the sense that there is a certain group of people who are only going to take you seriously unless you have citations. And frankly, a lot of people have cited my stuff, so yeah. I'm not going to be mad about it. But, uh, you know, the, if the media is over here, but then like the academic literature is over here and they're not talking to the same audience, but they're saying the same things. They just, yeah. these people are just doing it in fancier language. You know, like the people yeah. who are writing academic literature, they influence the media and the media influences them. Sometimes the literature is about the media, right? Yeah. But also the, 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 they're not doing anything any less ideologically abhorrent than, than they're just dressing it up in fancy language. And then people are using these things to go on and say terrible things in the media. So I, I think it's important that like I consider this to be just as valuable of scholarship than any journal article I'm going to write. Not only quite literally will more people hear it or consume it than an article because many people don't read journal articles, but also in the sense that like the form, the the efforts, the angles is different and more varied. And the people I have on here, because I don't really get to collaborate if I'm writing a journal article, not really. So once again, I thank you for being here. I'm glad I was able to be on yours. People listening, please go listen to the episode we did on her show. Like I said, the link is in the show notes. And of course, for those who haven't bought it yet, the book is always in the links in the show notes. So please go and get it if you haven't yet. But frankly, I don't think anyone who listens to my show hasn't gotten it because I don't have that many listeners and I have more people who bought my book than listeners. So, <laughs> so yeah. 
Oh. Right on. All right. Well, thank you so much again for having me. I appreciate it. And uh, hello to all your listeners. And I hope uh, I hope we do more cross collaborations for sure.